This show is made possible entirely by the support of listeners just like you. For details on all the ways to help or to sign up for a membership, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, Slate Magazine, Le Show, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, that's a new one, The Daily Show, and The Young Turks, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report. Here is your next quote. Uh, this is uh, killing an ant with a nuclear weapon. That now infamous quote from Minority Leader John Boehner was about a bill that President Obama finally signed into law this week. What law? Uh, financial overhaul. Exactly, the financial regulatory reform. Well done. This week, the Obama administration took a break from the work they were elected to do, firing innocent bureaucrats because crazy people on the Internet tell them to. <laughs> and passed major financial reform. Now, since everybody was riveted by Lindsay Lohan going to jail and missed out the whole thing, we thought we'd tell you what the law will do. First, all Wall Street tycoons with incomes over half a million a year have to dress like Uncle Moneybags from the Monopoly gang. (laughs) Top hat, monocle, and spats. Oh, it's about time. It is. ATM fees will be based on the amount of money you have in your bank account, so if you're a hedge fund manager taking out 100 bucks, your fee is $13 million. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, from now on, when conducting transactions that might eventually blow up uh, the entire economy, bankers have to add the statement, but on the other hand, what do I know? (laughs) Killing an ant with a nuclear weapon. That's what he said. What was the last ant to destroy the world's economy? Some some said that ant can't, but man, he had high hopes. (laughs) Hoops, there goes another world economy. Just what makes that little old ant think he'll move that rubber tree plant? Anyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant, but he's got high hopes. He's got Instead of letting go, just remember that ant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. These reforms represent the strongest consumer financial protections in history. And these protections will be enforced by a new consumer watchdog with just one job, looking out for people, not big banks, not lenders, not investment houses, looking out for people as they interact with the financial system. One of the real genuine accomplishments the financial regulation bill signed by President Obama is the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. As we watch what happened at the SEC during the financial crisis and at the Minerals Management Service in the years leading up to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we learn that it's not enough to have a regulatory agency. One of the most problematic trends we have seen is the cozy relationship between government agencies and the industries they're supposed to regulate. What matters over and above the existence of a regulatory agency is the culture, its sense of mission and ethos. And that's why the stakes are so high over who is going to head this new bureau. In the past, we've seen people running agencies who have come from the industry they're supposed to regulate, and then they pass through the revolving door back into that industry. 
the most natural and qualified person for this agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is someone who has been looking out for consumers and writing about consumer finance for a long time. Harvard Law Professor and Chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the TARP bailout funds, Elizabeth Warren. In the summer of 2007, Professor Warren wrote, quote, Clearly it is time for a new model of financial regulation, one focused primarily on consumer safety rather than corporate profitability. Financial products should be subject to the same routine safety screening that now governs the sale of every toaster, washing machine, and child's car seat sold on the American market. So why not create a financial product safety commission? Professor Warren went on to describe the responsibilities left an agency to evaluate financial products and get rid of the tricks and traps for consumers. Now, contrast that with Ben Bernanke, who was totally wrong about the subprime housing crisis and rewarded with an appointment to run the Fed. And Larry Summers, who was wrong on the, on the wrong side of deregulating derivatives markets and became the president's chief economic advisor. People in the establishment tend to fail upward. But here we have the rare instance of someone who actually got it right. The rare situation where the person who came up with the idea could run the agency and imbue it with the consumer first perspective it needs to be effective. So just for a change, how about this? Rather than putting someone as the head of an agency who was wrong, we put somebody in charge who was right. Joining us now is one of the authors of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, Chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, Congressman Barney Frank of Massachusetts. Chairman Frank, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Okay, so why do you think Elizabeth Warren should be appointed to head up uh, the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Well, for the reason you stated, plus uh, another one, she's a very savvy political operator. We have this uh, unfortunate view that if you are passionately idealistic and committed to a set of, of, of views, then you, you somehow must be unrealistic. And if you are someone who's hard-headed and understands how to work the political process, then you must be someone without values. Uh, that's a terrible division. In fact, uh, if you are idealistic, then you seems to me are morally obligated to be pragmatic because otherwise your ideals never get to help anybody. And Elizabeth Warren is an exemplar of that. Hmm. Uh, I, I had a wonderful experience working with her. I met her when we started out on this. I was glad to be her ally in getting this established. And throughout the process, she was sensible and thoughtful and effective. We worked very closely together. So uh, the, the notion that somehow because she cares so much, she couldn't do this effectively is exactly wrong. And I was glad, by the way, you mentioned subprime because this is not simply to protect consumers, although that's very important. It's also to protect the economy. One of the fights we had, and ironically, the Republicans try to blame our advocacy for lower-income people for the crisis. Exactly the opposite is the truth. Beginning in 2004, Democrats on the committee I now chair, but we were then in the minority, tried to restrict legally these subprime loans that should not have been granted to people who shouldn't have gotten them under terms they couldn't pay for. Finally, in this bill, we do create the laws because we finally got the ability with the Democratic Congress and the President to do it, and this Bureau will administer those laws. So when the Bureau steps in, I hope under Elizabeth Warren, and protects consumers from being put in loans that, that are just going to ruin their lives, that will also be helping protect the economy. And you know, I was just going over some quotes from the Republicans in the Wall Street Journal, oh, the market will do it, stop blocking the dream of home ownership. And of course, that was their argument for not going forward. But Elizabeth Warren, in addition to everything you said, is a very able 
operator, and that's going to be important because there will be obstacles put in the way, and she is smart and tough as well as idealistic. Let's talk about the obstacles. I mean, there there's sort of been these sort of somewhat nebulous news reports. There was a report that, that, that there was that Timothy Geithner was not terribly enthused about there, and then he had nice things to say about her. Robert Gibbs had, it seemed, very uh, complimentary things to say about her. Do you sense that there is uh, a desire on the part of the White House to name her to this post, and how much opposition do you expect from the banks uh, to, to her being uh, so named? Well, I have spoken to uh, people in the White House staff, and uh, uh, I, I've expressed my views in ways that I know the president has seen, and uh, I, some are enthusiastic, and others may have some questions. One of the issues raised was, well, it might be hard to get it confirmed in the Senate. My first response was, gee, uh, the way the Senate operates these days, I don't think I'd be for anybody who could easily be confirmed <laughs> in the Senate. That's not a badge of honor. But secondly, you know, the filibuster is bad enough when it's invoked. To, to cave in to the threat of a non-existent filibuster is a very bad idea. Uh, and and uh, I, I've seen in uh, Senator Dodd, whom I admire enormously, and he was a great partner, and he was one of the ones who said, well, she could be tough to get confirmed. And my answer to him is, well, all the more reason to try. You can't allow that kind of opposition to block it. As to the banks, one of the things I want to make uh, a point of pride here, because you were talking with uh, your previous guest about mobilizing the unemployed. People, especially liberals, tend to overbelieve the view that only big money counts. In fact, when the public gets mobilized, and my colleagues hear from their constituents, it makes a difference. And the proof of that is in the bill that we just passed, the big banks and the large investment houses did very badly. It was the small banks that did it. In fact, the independent community bankers, the association of, of, of smaller banks, took out an ad today in some of the Washington papers thanking Congress because we respected their role and they weren't the ones who caused this problem and we put them in a better footing than the large banks. So yeah, I do think some of the large institutions will be upset. By the way, one of the things that I hope will happen is this. I hope the large banks will be making less money from credit card fees and from overdrafts and from other things because I would like to get them back into lending money. That's what we have banks for. And to the extent that they can increase their profits in other ways, they have a diminished incentive to lend. The Washington Post reported this afternoon, uh, and then this goes to the sort of confirmability question, that two Republican appointees of the Congressional Oversight Panel who work with Elizabeth Warren praised her work on the panel, saying she was, quote, collegial and professional, and they found her quite willing to modify her views if presented with well-reasoned, cogent arguments. That sounds like exactly the sort of sort of pragmatism you've been describing, and I wonder if you can imagine a universe in which there would be re Republican support for her. Absolutely, and there'll be political pressure to do it. It's interesting, you mentioned earlier some of the Tea Party people. Look, there, there are people who are angry. In many ways, they are angry for good reasons. They, they express it, I think, in, in, in ways that would make things worse rather than better. Elizabeth Warren's been a consistent critic of, of, of any bias uh, in the system against the average citizen. And I think if you look at her record and look at where she's been, you will find people who would otherwise identify on the more conservative spectrum, part of the spectrum, who will be supportive. Yeah, I, I think that there are a number of Republicans who will be voting for her if she is nominated, and maybe a few moderate Democrats who don't. Um, again, I think as people get to know her, they will be impressed, as I was. There were a couple of times, frankly, uh, the Obama administration sent us a, uh, a draft of the consumer agency, which had some things in it that I thought were politically unwise, would generate a lot of opposition, and wouldn't be very practical. And that's when I first began to work with Elizabeth Warren, and I approached her and said, gee, uh, you know, are you wedded to these? She said, oh no, I think they're, they're bad ideas. I was just <laughs> delighted that uh, she had that 
ability to focus on what's important and what isn't. So, uh, uh, no, I, I don't. I, let me say this about the president in defense of him in general. It's not his fault that we didn't get a public option. We just couldn't have gotten the votes. Many of us tried very hard. The stimulus bill was smaller than it should have been. That was not his fault. Republicans in the, in the Senate blocked him. There have been other things where he has been on our side and we've been on the same side and he hasn't been able to do it. But with regard to this appointment, there'll be nobody but him who will be making that decision. So this will be, I think, uh, uh, a very good test. And I, I believe he's going to pass it. I think that, uh, uh, you know, this is not getting to allow a filibuster threatened to block something that makes so much sense would be a very bad idea. I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month, or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. In 2001 and 2003, George Bush enacted some of the largest tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans in history. That tax cut was promised to spur the economy and help balance the budget. Well, it's been about 10 years since those tax cuts, and as we look around, the jobs market is in the toilet and the deficit has ballooned. Now even economists like Alan Greenspan and David Stockman admit that those tax cuts ballooned the deficit and was a fraud committed on the American people. So what are the Republicans pushing as their economic platform? More tax cuts for the wealthy because it will help the economy, balance the budget, and create more jobs. So here is Eric Cantor, the Republican whip in the House going on CNBC, and the reporters are trying to get Eric to admit that his policy of cutting taxes for the wealthiest Americans will add to the deficit. Well, look, I mean, Democrats may not want to do spending cuts and Republicans don't want to touch taxes would you acknowledge though it, it may be a policy judgment you have made but will you just as simply acknowledge that passing these tax cuts worsens the budget deficit problem I mean you can't Savannah, deny that right so, so- Savannah, let's look at it through the prism of the working families who are seeking jobs and the small business people who are creating them. It's not its not a tax cut they're looking for. They don't want a tax hike. And that's that the situation, the prism, right. the prism the, through which these people are looking at it. I mean, come on now. You can't yeah, no, hike your taxes just, and expect them to create jobs. I just, just was wondering if you, had a, if you had any dispute with the notion that it does exacerbate the deficit picture. Well, what I what I said in the beginning is, um, if you have less revenues coming into the federal government and more expenditures, what does that add up to? Certainly, you're going to dig dig the hole deeper. But you you also have to understand if the priority is to get people back to work, is to start growing this economy again, uh, then you don't want to make it more expensive for job creators. You don't want to hike their taxes so that they won't hire people. I mean, that's the fundamental uh, decision here. Do you want to make it more expensive Are, for small business people right now? I, I no, I don't think you do. Well, which is it, Faye Dunaway? Is she your sister? 
sister or your daughter? Side note, the problem with that joke is that Fade Runaway was telling the truth. Eric Cantor isn't. He's pandering. And don't get me wrong, I love pandering. I used to pay an Asian lady good money to pander to me every third Monday of the month. But when a politician panders to us or an entire party, the effect is kind of the same in the sense that we all get screwed and later feel remorseful and broke and cheap and dirty. But then that third Monday rolls around again and darn if we can't help ourselves. Anyway, the point is Eric Cantor is totally full of crap. And he got caught here by a fairly simple question of logic, which points out the completely contradictory and untenable platform of the whole Republican Party. This is obvious. The more subtle part that I love is the way this clip points out so glaringly how Republican talking points, when added up, are less than the sum of their parts. Savannah, let's look at it through the prism of the working families who are seeking jobs and the small business people are creating them. Okay, first of all, Eric, I don't think there are any working families that are seeking jobs. If the families seeking jobs were working, they wouldn't have all that extra time for seeking. There's only 24 hours in a day. But I do want to know more about this crazy prism Eric Cantor keeps referring to. Is it one of those kooky prisms that just refracts the truth? So when he looks through it, he can only see things that aren't real. I think most Republicans are looking through that same prism. The GOP must hand them out when you win an election. Anyway, all you have to do is look through that special prism, and everything Eric Cantor says suddenly makes sense. Take the deficit. He's worried that the government is spending more money than it's collecting, and he wants to solve that problem by once again cutting taxes for the wealthiest Americans. Now you, or any other sane person, might look at that proposal and say, hey, if the government government is collecting less money from rich people, won't that make the deficit even worse? And you'd be right. But if you look through Eric Cantor's prism, it becomes clear that the only way for the government to get more money is for the government to collect less money. Does that sound crazy to you? Well, you must not be looking through Eric Cantor's prism. You don't want to hike their taxes so that they won't hire people. I mean See, here's another example where that prism comes in handy. Rich people have been enjoying this tax cut since 2001, and they need that tax cut renewed because if it isn't, they won't be able to create any jobs to put those working-seeking families back to work that they're doing or may be seeking. Again, a rational person like you or me might say that if tax cuts equal job creation and the tax cuts have been in place for 10 years, how can we keep losing jobs? Shouldn't the tax cuts have kept the country humming along, cranking out jobs at top speed over the last decade? Or is it possible that when you give rich people more money that they don't need, they don't spend it? They just add it to the pile. Or maybe you're onto something there. But try looking at it through the Republican prism. Deficit too high? Cut taxes for the wealthy. Economy not growing fast enough? Cut taxes for the wealthy. Attacked by terrorists? Cut taxes for the wealthy. Need money to attack other countries that had nothing to do with the terrorists? Cut taxes for the wealthy. I think I'm starting to see how this prism works. It's more like a magic eight ball. Except that little cube in the murky water has the same answer on every side. You can shake it all you want, but it always comes up cut taxes for the wealthy. But every American does want a tax cut. Hence, every Republican forever has promised them. And we're not talking about a tax hike so much as allowing the Bush tax cuts just to lapse. And even though those facts get in the way, that stuff Eric Cantor is slinging still sounds good, don't it? Let's look at this through the prism of the working families. It's not a tax cut they're looking for. They don't want a tax hike. Every one of these little gems sounds great. They feel great. This guy gets me. It's like he's petting me in all the places I want to be petted. But take it as a whole, 
Oh, that's right. Taken as a whole, he's a whore and this is a lie, and I'm out 300 bucks and he gets to keep his job. Well, see you next third Monday, Eric. If you know what I mean. Okay, so that was another fabulous piece on uh, Eric Cantor and the emptiness of the Republican Party's platform. Jimmy, the the, the trickle-down theory really, uh, it, it does work. If you <laughs> let the rich keep all their money, eventually it will trickle down to malnourished children in the form of tiny crumbs in their stomachs. <laughs> That, that is what they're pushing. They're still pushing yes. trickle-down. I mean, that's mm-hmm. supply-side economics. And mm-hmm. I thought that the result of that is what we're living in and we're trying to... That's the hole we're trying to get out of right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it, it's only been like 30 years. you got to give it time. Would you reach out a hand to me? Because I've been down for quite some time now. I've been down for quite some time. Today's story is called, Restore the Estate Tax. The billionaire, the union leader, and the heiress try to bring back the tax on inherited wealth. And it's written by Daniel Gross. So a Treasury secretary, a labor union leader, a hedge fund billionaire, and an heiress walk into a conference call. It's not a Catskills joke. It was the teleconference staged last week by United for a Fair Economy's Responsible Wealth Project to discuss the need to reinstate the estate tax. The situation surrounding the estate tax is truly bizarre. The excellent book, Death by a Thousand Cuts, by Michael Gratz and Ian Shapiro, describes how a tax that falls on the slimmest minority of Americans was set on the path to extinction in 2001. Legislation called for the tax to decline to the point at which it disappears entirely in 2010. Then it would bounce back to its pre-2001 level in 2011. The Republican advocates of the legislation assumed that Congress would act in the interim to permanently abolish the tax. But they didn't, in large measure because, shocker, Republicans in 2009 refused to cooperate on a compromise. And so 2010 is turning into an excellent time for rich people to die. Senators John Kyle, a Republican of Arizona, and Blanche Lincoln, a Democrat of Arkansas, are working on a proposal to reduce estate taxes going forward. They're an odd pair. The number of Arkansans subject to the estate tax each year could fit into the master bathroom of a Greenwich, Connecticut mansion. And Kyle is one of those foolish deficit faux hawks who can't abide increases in debt, but is happy to push legislation that would increase the deficit by a few hundred billion dollars. The purpose of the press conference was to show that abolishing the estate tax massively increases the deficit in order to help a few very wealthy people. 
Former Treasury Secretary and former City Chairman Robert Rubin opened the call, playing the role of the wise establishmentarian. He argued that the current deficits are unsustainable, and public investments in infrastructure and education are necessary to keep America strong. Our country faces tremendous unemployment and shortfalls in investment, and we have a fiscal path that is unsustainable and dangerous in many different respects. He said, and since the estate tax supplies revenues with no adverse supply side effects, the proceeds could be used for deficit reduction, for public investments, or to help people afflicted by the economic crisis. Second on the call was the union leader. You know the type. Barrel-chested, tough-talking, confrontational, very much into class warfare. In the union leader's worldview, the top one percent have been bogarting all the economic gains for the past few decades. Richard Trumka, president of the AFL-CIO, appealed not just to reason but to emotion. He started by reading a quote from Theodore Roosevelt about the evils of inherited wealth. Speaking with disdain of the Kyle Lincoln proposal, he said, "We think it's ludicrous that some in Congress are proposing to end the estate tax at the same time they oppose action to create jobs. Anyone who pretends to care about cutting deficits while opposing reestatement of estate tax is clearly residing on a different planet than working people." Trumka was followed by the hedge fund magnate, one of those self-made, public-minded billionaires who can be found here and there in the tech and financial industries. These guys are acutely aware of the differences between people who make money, them, and people who receive it, rich kids, between the multipliers, them, and the spenders, rich kids. To Julian Robertson, the founder of hedge fund giant Tiger Management and a major philanthropist, the economic and moral case for an estate tax increase was simple: you get out of a credit crisis by getting your house in order, and in America's case, bringing your deficit down. This implies tax increases. He said, "The fairest way to do it," he said, "is to tax the least deserving recipients of wealth, which are the inheritors." The tax is not just good for America, he said, but even for the heirs and heiresses. Robertson noted that there are indicators that inheritors have difficulty adjusting to their inheritance. I guess he watches Gossip Girl too. Finally came the inheritor, on whom the mantle of great inherited wealth frequently weighs heavily. Heirs who favor an estate tax are motivated less by liberal guilt than by unease, realism, and historical perspective. They've seen how their families amassed, preserved, and passed down wealth in spite of income and estate taxes that were far higher than they are today. My life of great comfort was made possible in spite of the estate tax," said Abigail Disney, the grandniece of Walt Disney, a filmmaker and philanthropist. And my grandfather, Roy Disney, brother of Walt, would be the first to tell you that he was able to amass his fortune not in spite of, but because of the American system. The roads that enabled people to get to Disneyland, the patents that protected Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and the Marshall Plan, which helped provide a vast European market for the company. Heirs know that while charity has its own rewards, the estate tax and charitable deductions provide huge spurs to philanthropy. Coming from different places, the quartet arrived at the same destination. In an era of rampant inequality, low taxes on owners of assets and capital, and record deficits. The estate taxes' impending revival couldn't come at a better time. I know, 'cause I've seen it. It was great, and I want it. There's no point.
tonight um, with a totally unexpected development inside Republican Party politics. As the Republicans' big economic talking point, what they want to run on in 2010, is destroyed by one of their own. Destroyed by a fellow nationally known Republican candidate. Here's the talking point in question. Let me just propose something that may seem crazy to you. You don't need to pay for tax cuts. They pay for themselves. You need policies like an extension and making permanent the 01, the 01 and 03 tax cuts. They will be paid for because they create economic growth. When President Bush imposed those tax cuts, they actually generated economic growth. They expand the economy. They expand tax but revenue. Behold the Republican economy talking point for this year. The Bush tax cuts for rich people have to be extended. And don't worry about offsetting those tax cuts. Don't worry about paying for them because they're free. They pay for themselves. They don't add to the deficit. They actually reduce the deficit. The shock political development tonight is the way that this philosophy, this talking point, is being debunked and dismantled, complete with a pithy, insulting phrase from within the Republican Party. A nationally known Republican sage, Republican graybeard, is taking his fellow Republicans apart on this one. So what I'm saying is that, that it's, uh, it just isn't going to work. And it's very interesting that the man who invested this type of what I call a voodoo economic policy. Voodoo economics. The idea that massive tax cuts can actually reduce the deficit and help balance the budget. It's voodoo economics. Burn. That was, of course, George Herbert Walker Bush way back in the primary season before the 1980 election debunking fellow Republican Ronald Reagan's promise, his campaign promise, that he would balance the budget while also giving massive tax cuts. A big difference, for example, that the governor and I have regards this uh, tax cut. In my judgment, that economic program would exacerbate the deficit. It would result in less stimulation of the economy. Now, Poppy Bush, as you know, ultimately lost that Republican primary, but he did turn out to be right about Ronald Reagan and the whole idea of voodoo economics. When President Reagan entered office, the national debt was about $994 billion. When Ronald Reagan left office, the national debt had swelled to $2.8 trillion. Love Ronald Reagan or hate him, when Poppy Bush said that Reagan's economic policies would exacerbate the deficit, boy howdy, he wasn't kidding. And Reagan's supply-side, trickle-down nonsense about how his tax cuts would pay for themselves, they wouldn't add to the deficit, that was, that was, well, you say it, Poppy Bush. What I call a voodoo economic policy. George Bush Sr. was right. It's voodoo economics. Tax cuts don't actually pay for themselves. If they aren't offset, they grow the deficit, just like spending does. And yet when George Bush Sr.'s son was president and was pushing through his own massive tax cuts, listen to the argument that he made. 
Tax relief not only has helped our economy, but has helped the federal budget. You cut taxes and the tax revenues increase. If that sounds too good to be true, that's because it is. That argument was debunked by his dad years before. It was debunked by the experience of the Reagan administration. It was debunked even at the time that George W. Bush was making that argument by his own economic advisors. A 2003 report to George W. Bush from his Council of Economic Advisors said, quote, although the economy grows in response to tax reductions, it is unlikely to grow so much that lost tax revenue is completely recovered. In other words, they're not paid for. In 2006, Bush's Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, said, quote, as a general rule, I don't believe that tax cuts pay for themselves. In 2007, Bush's former chief economist wrote to people still in the administration, quote, you are smart people. You know that the tax cuts have not fueled record revenues. Now, you may not care that tax cuts add to the deficit. You may think that the deficit doesn't matter. You may think that reducing tax rates on rich people is so important that the whole country should take on debt in order to pay for that. But the idea that tax cuts are going to magically not affect the deficit, the idea that, as Steve Bennett at the Washington Monthly said today, uh, the tax fairy is going to come in and make giant tax cuts not balloon the deficit, the argument that one way to cut the deficit is actually to cut taxes, it's nonsense. It's magic. It's, well... What I call a voodoo economic policy. Right. Thank you, sir. Today at the White House, no one said the word voodoo, but President Obama turned criticism of Republicans blocking unemployment benefits into an attack on the way Republicans do like to spend money. I have to say, after years of championing policies that turned a record surplus into a massive deficit, the same people who didn't have any problems sp spending hundreds of billions of dollars on tax breaks for the wealthiest Americans are now saying we shouldn't offer relief to middle-class Americans. President Obama obviously wants unemployment benefits extended to help ease the pain on the millions of Americans who are out of work right now. But he is also making a larger argument about how Republicans govern, what Republican priorities are. Democrats obviously want this upcoming election to be as much as possible about Republicans. They want it to be about what's wrong with individual Republican candidates, what's being proposed in terms of individual Republican policies. Republicans, on the other hand, keep saying over and over again now that they really want this election to be about spending and the deficit. They say they want to run on their fiscal conservative credentials, which is a framing that Democrats should welcome. Here's how the national debt has increased under Republican and Democratic presidents. On the Republican side, excuse me, on the Democratic side, the debt went up 42% under Jimmy Carter and 36% under Bill Clinton. On the Republican side, it went up 189% under Ronald Reagan, it went up 55% under George Bush Sr., and it went up a whopping 89% under George Bush Jr. So that's the record of fiscal conservatism that Republicans want to run on, apparently. As both Bush presidents might say if they were awkwardly amalgamated into one Bush president. Read my lips. Bring them on. Let's have bizarre celebrations. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. 
Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. More of the show after this important message. The economy is tanking. The dollar is drowning. Stocks don't make me laugh. And by the way, I never laugh. <laughs> I'm G. Gordon Liddy. And if you're as scared about the future as I am trying to make you, you know you can't trust your security to stocks or insurance or even precious metal. You have basic needs. And sure, you've probably already got a good stock of food and water. But what about air? Without it, breathing is virtually impossible. Yet, if you're like most people, you've probably assumed it would always be there. That's how I thought until 10 years ago, when I met the people at Crossland Oxygen, America's leading suppliers of fine investment-grade breathable air for home and family. Maybe you think you can't afford to keep a well-maintained two-month supply of pure, breathable air at or near your home. But think about this. You can't afford not to. Crossland Oxygen obtains the finest oxygen and nitrogen in the market, blends them according to their own proprietary formula for maximum blood support, and then seals it in titanium tanks to make a great addition to any den or basement. Sure, other companies are rushing into the emergency breathable air business, but you can trust Crossland. After all, that's where I buy my breathable air. Don't leave your respiration to chance. <sighs> that's the sound of breathing, no matter what happens. That's the sound of Crossland Oxygen. The United States unemployment numbers are, you know, the official ones we throw out there all the time are wrong. And they are knowingly wrong, and everybody knows they're wrong, and nobody even pretends that they're right. But that's the one we use anyway, funnily enough. And that number, what is that number at, Ben, right now? Fluctuates somewhere in the nines. But just a little under 10 is the official uh, 10%, the official jobless rate. Now, why is that a lie? And why do we all know it's a lie? And why do we play this game to begin with? Well, it's a lie because... We changed the way the statistics on an unemployment were calculated uh, a while back. And instead of counting everybody who wasn't working the obvious logical way, and that's the way it had been done ever since the numbers had been you know, kept track of, the people in Congress and whatnot decided they wanted to change it so that we only counted the people that were recently unemployed. I believe the number is six months out of work and actively looking. So that guy who's holding a sign at your freeway off-ramp saying, you know, homeless, need a job or whatever, if he's been there for a year, he's not even counted in the official unemployment numbers. 
and the reason it's so hypocritical is that the reason that that was done was because you know the numbers weren't looking good enough for the politicians so they just changed the way they're calculated and all of a sudden when you compare the current numbers to the numbers from just a couple years ago you look like you're doing okay because a couple years ago they counted everybody and you know now they don't so this has been going on for quite some time now and people still like to compare you know current unemployment rates oh it's only 10% now and look what it was in 1966 or something so it's a lie because the ones in 1966 are not inflated and the ones we have today are. Um, so what's the real unemployment number? And that's what I came to my financial friend about. Uh, that differs, depending on who you believe, uh, anywhere from 14% to as high as 22%. The real unemployment numbers. You're counting everybody that's out of work. You know, when you start getting into the 22% range, ladies and gentlemen, you start getting into like Great Depression era numbers. You also start getting into the territory where civil unrest and those kinds of byproducts that the American system has normally been spared become more possible. The system becomes less stable under the stress of long-term, you know, big unemployment numbers. So it's important we get people working because 70% of the U.S. economy is driven by consumers. So I throw that information out to my financial friend as a way of saying, do you see all the dominoes that are going to tumble if these people aren't working soon? And if this, you know, high unemployment number, that 22% one is anywhere near true, which it might not be. And his comeback to me shook me. It shouldn't have, sh shouldn't have shaken me, but it did. It shouldn't have shaken me because I've been saying it for years. But to hear somebody else say it, you know, it's one thing if the kooky Martian person says it. It's another thing if the hard-bitten conservative financial guy says it. He turns around to me, and I was talking about the middle class, and he says, don't worry about the middle class. He said, there's not going to be a middle class worth talking about very soon, so we're going to invest around that. Not me, but just everybody. You know, you just, It's a reality that's already being taken into account. He says, he says, don't worry about it from a consumer spending standpoint either, because the rich people are going to buy a lot of stuff. What he was talking about is a system becoming ever more two-tiered, a very rich class and everybody else, and the everybody else is going to be by and large below that level that we always considered to be, you know, the, the bedrock of American society, the middle class. That's stunning information coming from someone like him if, you know, you were me and you knew him. It's a sea change in his attitude. And I thought about this for a while. You have to understand if you live outside the United States, talking about classes in society is very strange here. You go to a place like Europe and it just rolls off the tongue and they have no problem dealing with it. The legacy of uh, anti-communist feeling and how class itself was almost a Marxist idea to most Americans has led us into a weird area because we'll use terms like middle class and stuff like that. But we don't talk about the upper class and the lower class the way they do in you know places like Europe. What this does, though, this creates a little dishonesty sometimes about the problem. Because if you can openly explain what it is and talk about, for example, how the middle class is suffering and shrinking and really get in there and make it a political issue, you might see some progress on it. Part of the problem in our country right now is that our priorities are so screwed up. You'll hear people uh, in government say, well, you can't make any progress on this issue. And you say, well, you could if you change your priorities. I'll give you an example. Because we're not going to go here, because this is what I was going to do, and I'm not going to do it anymore, but there's still lots of it in my head. Usually when I talk about 
how our country got to the point we're at with jobs, I bring up the 1990s. The 1990s was the time, the last time, that the U.S. government really got together uh, with other world leaders and, you know, reorganized the world, economically speaking. That's the whole era of globalization. That's not a conspiratorial or strange thing to say, by the way. Um, world leaders from the big countries periodically get together and do financial world reorganizations. Um, look at what Bretton Woods in uh, 1944, I think it was, uh, was one of those times where, you know, the world leaders get together, decide on, you know, what the reserve currency is going to be and all these kinds of things. These happen periodically as needed. In the 1990s, treaties and trade deals and organizations crafted what's been called you know, the globalization, free trade era, those are spin terms, just so you know, especially that one free trade. It's very easy to say, well, I'm for free trade, because, you know, what are you if you're not for free trade? That's part of the spin. You could go find some really hardcore libertarians who are for real free trade, and they'll explain to you why the term we were using in the 1990s has little to do with that idea. These are all selling points for the first world countries, especially the United States. My problem with all these deals at the time revolved around a simple question that was very hard to get a straight answer to. And when people who are very smart deliberately try to not answer your simple question, you have every right to be suspicious of why. The two kinds of answers I got to the question I'm about to pose to you was the truthful one and the lie. The lie was what people like President Clinton and the free trade, so-called free trade, uh, people in government were giving you in the 1990s. Here was my question. I said... If you globalize labor, which is what they were talking about doing essentially, how are, you know, American workers and other workers in first world countries where it's expensive to live, they require lots of benefits, the society itself requires a lot in taxes, how are those people ever going to be able to compete with people who live in societies where you can live on $2 a day and that's what your employer will pay you? The people who lied when they gave that answer said, education. Education will make it all right. I remember President Clinton saying that. He said, those kind of jobs that we will be sending overseas as part of all these reforms are going to be the kind of jobs Americans shouldn't be doing anymore anyway, the kind they don't really even want, those blue-collar, messy, factory assembly line jobs. Americans are going to be the overseers of that. You have this great globalization. You'll have things like the Internet. He didn't say the Internet, but he said you'll be able to digitally monitor people. I mean, it was one of these things where... All these trade deals were touted as better for Americans and better for everyone else in these first world countries when obviously you had a huge glaring problem. How were first world workers going to compete with people who could live off so much less? Look, if you're an entrepreneur and you export something or import something, that was good for you. There's Americans that benefited from this, and we all benefit from the low prices that come from this globalization and people being able to work for less. Those toys from China are cheaper, and American consumers benefit from that. At the same time, folks, that comes with a cost. And it's not just the amount of money that goes into the middle class's pockets. It's the amount of money they spend in an economy based 70% on the consumer. And there's a well-being to having a job, having a sunny future, feeling capable of paying back a loan and then taking out a loan and keeping that capital thriving, you know, in our economy. And creating a system that is stable as opposed to one where you know, anxious anxieties and joblessness run so high that you're afraid of things like civil unrest. Jobs help quell that problem. Now, what if the trade-off, folks, was between 
you know, jobs, good middle class, high paying, you know, send your kid to college at least, jobs, and cheaper products. And just so you know, the reason the American system we were always taught in school, economically speaking, you know, the relationship between employers and employees, the reason we were always taught that that's a fair system is that both sides in that equation get a chance to be, you know, in a position of strength. When there's a lot of surplus labor, the employer can lower wages and say, hey, if you won't take it, the next guy next to you will. Somebody will take this job at this wage. But conversely, there are supposed to be times in the economy when, you know, labor is scarce. And that's when workers have the upper hand and can say to management, hey, you either pay more for this job or I'm not doing it. There's lots of jobs out there. When that system becomes unfair is when you make it so that there's never any scarcity in labor at all. So labor never has the upper hand, so they never have the bargaining power. Listen, in this country, ladies and gentlemen, we will still get labor shortages in sectors. And they'll say, well, you know, we don't have enough nurses right now. And so what our government will do then is rather than let nursing become a profession where, wow, nurses can get paid a whole lot of money now. There's not enough nurses. Instead, we go and we change the immigration quotas and we get people to say, listen, if you're from, you know, let's just say the Philippines and we wouldn't have let you in under our immigration quotas before, but you happen to be a nurse, you can come in now because we're short of nurses. Another way that we take the bargaining power of a people, even in a specific profession, and undercut it by simply adding to the labor pool. Now, what were the people that were telling me the truthful answer to my question about American workers competing with third world countries? What were they telling me? Those were mostly libertarian people, and they were being honest. I would say, what's going to happen to American workers? And they would say, well, their labor is going to be worth what it really probably should be worth in a world market. In other words, what they were saying is, if the going rate for working on an assembly line is $5 a day, that's what Americans should be making. They would say that, you know, what these trade deals would facilitate is a true market and maybe Americans are overpaid. That's a fair answer. You can debate that. You can have that conversation. Can you imagine President Clinton and the supporters of all this stuff getting up in front of the American people and saying, I'm telling you the truth. American wages are too high. Pass these trade deals and we will equalize the global wage scale so that the people from the poorer countries move up and the people from the richer countries move down and they meet in a corresponding, you know, equilibrium in the middle. Imagine having that conversation. I would have been fine with that. If the American people and our legislators want to vote for that after we've had that public debate, no problem. It's not the public debate we had. The public debate we had was vote for this. It'll mean white collar jobs. Just stay educated. We'll all make more money. And bingo, here we are. And all day it seems we've been in between a past and future town. We are nowhere and it's now. We are nowhere and it's now. In like a ten minute dream in the passenger seat while the world was flying by. As you know, one company has stood out in all the recent financial chaos as the name to trust when it comes to having no reason to trust them.
Goldman Sachs, which accepted $10 billion in government money, announced more than $10 billion in benefits, bonuses, and compensation. Goldman Sachs is accused of helping rig the game against investors. Goldman Sachs made a massive bet the housing market would collapse. Accused of misleading regulators about risky mortgages. Goldman executives seemed to cheer as the housing market collapsed. Those, that wasn't cheering. Those were orgasms. <laughs> Sell. <laughs> this spring, Goldman's top brass was even hauled into the Senate to defend their infamous abacus deal, in which the firm profited by selling securities that were designed to fail. Be warned. Some of this language might be offensive to anyone offended by the word Look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. Boy, that Timberwolf was one deal. It's the same one that your folks called Excuse the language. There weren't enough Americans with credit ratings. Junk or a piece of crap or deal. And then you have the one later about how it was. Why, 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 uh, why Beauregard, such, such salty language. I, and today of all days to get rid of my my feeding couch, I, I, oh, sell. <laughs> but this week, good news. Goldman Sachs had to settle with the SEC by paying a $550 million fine, also known as interest from Tuesday's profit, and admitting <laughs> making a mistake in non-disclosure of information to clients. And thankfully, they get it now. They just announced they're taking steps to address what they believe was the systemic problem within the Goldman culture. Goldman Sachs announcing a zero-tolerance policy for profanity in employee emails. You can't even spell out swear words with asterisks. Lesson learned. <laughs> so let the word go forth. Goldman may still <laughs> you over. From now on, they themselves will refer to it as making sweet, sweet love to you. Tucker Carlson is on Washington Journal here, and I don't know if he recognizes that what he's saying is so outrageous. Or maybe perhaps to his bow tie ass, this is perfectly normal. But he's going to let you know what the reality is, what's going on inside the conservative mind. Let's watch. Final question from Twitter. Dennis says, Tucker, where do you think this country is heading? And wrong. There certainly is a feeling that things are, are really off track, more off track than any time in my conscious lifetime anyway and and debt is clearly the problem i mean in two years the national debt will be a hundred percent of gdp and that's unsustained that's not a real country at that point that's not sustainable you don't you can't have that that's third world and um and so clearly they're going to have to be radical adjustments there aren't enough rich people in this country to pay down the debt to the extent it needs to be paid down so we're going to have to trim back it seems to me 
um, our expenditures, and that means cutting entitlements, Social Security, and particularly Medicare, need to be dealt with. I think the basic assumptions of American life, which are the assumptions of increasingly of socialism, that the government will be there for you and take care of you, are going to be re-examined pretty soon. I hope so. And the one other thing I would say is the trend in the last 30 years in this country has been away from risk. Risk is bad. Anything that is even slightly dangerous is terrifying. Smoking, seesaws, you know, anything that could hurt you is really, really bad. And the result is the country has gotten a little grayer and less interesting because the flip side of risk is, of course, joy. And sure. I hope that we're moving back from that and maybe accepting risk as part of life. We all, it turns out, I have heard anyway, die in the end. And maybe we should just accept that and live with a greater degree of courage and happiness. Maybe be a tiny bit more like Israel, it seems to me, would be good. Where do I start? Okay, so the right answer is we should be a tiny bit more like Israel. What that has to do with any of this, I don't even understand. Should, are we, should we take more risk by raiding flotillas and killing people on board? I don't, I don't know what he means, right? All right, but let's get to the heart of it. The opposite of risk is joy? We're not taking enough risk in this country? What do you call that Wall Street debacle? They took tremendous risk, and the opposite of it was not joy. It was the debilitating, world-collapsing disaster. Fail on top of fail. Did you not notice the entire economy cratering? Did you not lo notice us losing 8 million jobs? Is that what you call joy? And the reality is, of course, for Tucker Carlson, it is joy. His friends got super rich off of it. They're joyous. And they took your money and they'd love to do it again. And he says, oh, the debt is the problem. It's funny because I didn't hear Tucker Carlson saying that when Bush was in office for eight years. As Bush took a giant surplus and turned it into a giant deficit. Not a peep from Tucker Carlson. Not a peep. Now Obama's in office. Oh, I'll tell you what, the debt and the deficit. What are we going to do? And he says it. What are we going to do? We're going to cut your Social Security. There just aren't rich enough people, enough rich people. Oh, come on, you leave the rich alone. Leave the rich alone. Uh, and and, and we got to come and take it from you. Because we've already gotten our joy. It's time to kick your ass and take your Social Security money. The only positive thing I can say about Tucker Carlson is he finally realized the bow tie is not the way to go. Okay. Something's apparently got through his knucklehead. Now, uh, about your Social Security and your pensions, they're coming for it. Here's two articles that scare the living crap out of me. First, we've got states across the country who are saying, yeah, did we promise you a pension? Not so much. So Arizona, New York, Missouri, and Mississippi are all saying, what well, we used to give in pensions, not happening anymore. Gone, okay? Uh, they are massively scaling down pensions for state workers. And, uh, oh, by the way, you won't get to retire 65 anymore either. A lot of the states are saying now you've got to retire at 67, and we're having a conversation about, as to whether that's going to be later. Okay, now, but I could live with those because we do have to make cuts in, the, in some of the state budgets, and I do believe the deficit and debt are a, a massive problem for the U.S. I believe that during the Bush years. I believe it during the Obama years. Okay, and at least they're telling people up front, hey, if you sign up to be a state worker here, well, now here's the new plan. Okay, so that, that's, that's defensible. But here comes Colorado, and Colorado says, yeah, the deals we made before, we don't like those deals anymore. So if you retired based on what you thought you were going to get and the pension we promised you and that we're contractually obligated to give you, not so much anymore. We're cutting it. 
And uh, the New York Times explains that a lot of companies are seeing an interesting example in Colorado, and if the courts allow it, you know how when the bankers always said, oh, God, contracts, our contract, we had a contract with AIG, you had to give us $13 billion. Taxpayer had to give it, we had a contract. But we didn't have a contract with you. Who cares if it was a contract? You have to pay, right? But now when it comes to you and your pensions, all of a sudden in Colorado, you don't have a contract anymore. And the different companies in the different states, they don't want to honor your pension contracts. They say it's too expensive. Yeah, it's too expensive after we created a giant deficit by bailing out the richest people in America. Okay, if you think that's bad, then the next article from Bloomberg... I'll read you the title, Goldman Sachs Seeks Bigger Share of 401k Accounts. Disaster. Here comes Goldman Sachs for your 401k. They realized, oh, you know what? There's a lot of money in the 401ks. We can help the 401ks achieve better results. I read the article. I was like, oh, no, run for the hills. Okay, don't let them touch your 401k. So there goes your 401k. There goes your pension. Tucker Carlson is coming after your Social Security. The Obama's Deficit Commission is coming after your Social Security. Look, I don't want to scare you too much, but I also want to warn you. They're coming for your money. There's one last piggy bank. That's your retirement money. And they want to crack that open. And as you can see, they admit it on TV. They admit it in the articles. Pete Peters has been trying to do this for decades. Now Obama's let the well, fox into the hen house. Look, I, I, you know, politicians always say, oh, I, you know, I met a lady in Indiana, I met a guy in Massachusetts, etc. Okay, I, I get real emails from real Americans. I'm not running for any office. And I got one today, if somebody's retiring, they're worried about the stuff I'm saying on the show, are they going to have enough to retire? Man, if they come and take your money and don't give you what they promised you, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> I'm already so mad over it. We got to band together, man. It is not acceptable. As you go and, and try to, you know, live in your retirement, and they come and they talk about joy and taking your social security money and giving it to their friends, hell no, man. Hell no. We got to fight that tooth and nail. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I want to take a minute today to uh, introduce the new show that you heard for the first time. Uh, I played a clip today from Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And um, so to avoid any confusion, uh, because last time I introduced a new show, there was some confusion. So I want to make sure that everyone realizes that Dan Carlin uh, does a show that is not satirical. Not at all satirical. He's very serious. And, uh, and so if you hear him... For instance, referring to uh, something like Rape Night at the Palms, no, he is serious about that, and that is not a joke. So now just a little bit more about him. First of all, he, he's a great guy. I contacted him to uh, to let him know that I was hoping to use a clip from his show and in all likelihood more moving forward, and he was very happy to hear it, you know, it was very thankful for the extra promotion. And, um, and it, you know, it's just a genuinely uh, nice, great guy. I think he's going to be a, a friend of the show for a long time. And, uh, and so his show is, um, is it's a really great uh, kind of monologue, long-form show. And he actually does two, just so you know. So uh, look him up at dancarlin.com, and he does two shows. One is primarily on politics. 
and the other is uh, and is focused on history and not just political history, but you know all, all kinds of history. And so, like I said, I mean, you, you heard him for yourself today. That's that's basically what his show sounds like. Uh, you know, long form narratives where he uh, he kind of tackles big issues and takes a long time to really spell out his uh, take on any given issue. Um, but he does a really great job at it. So now I actually heard of Dan uh, months ago. This was back in the very early days of me trying to turn this show into uh, a part-time job for myself. And so I, I got an email from a listener who had heard Dan Carlin talking about how he was taking advantage of and apparently having some success with the Amazon.com affiliate program the same way I am now. And, and so this listener was encouraging me to check it out and probably, you know, do the same thing. And so in this kind of roundabout way, I actually have Dan to thank for introducing me to this program, which has actually turned out really well for me. It's been working really well. Uh, the listeners like it and, uh, you know, it's easy, doesn't cost them any money, but they get to support the show anyways. And so, um, so I, I have Dan to thank for that. Thank you, Dan. And then since I mentioned that anyways, I also wanted to, to say more specifically about the Amazon program because because uh, I, I get kind of these regular emails on this topic. And so I just want to say on the show uh, to let you guys know, uh, I, the, by far, the email I get the most about the Amazon program is people saying that they, they clicked through either on the widget or the banner ad. I have the top of the page. And they did their shopping and they think they did everything right, but there wasn't any particular indication that uh, that appropriate credit had been given to uh, to the show, and so they were just a little nervous. You know, hey, how do I make sure it worked? And unfortunately, the, the answer to that is it's it's really not easy to make sure it worked. So I just want to say, as kind of a blanket statement, don't worry. It almost certainly worked because the program has been working so well that if you guys were screwing it up, uh, I, I can't imagine how it would be going as well as it is. So I just want to say, use the links, use the widget, and uh, let your cares drift away. If you click through from the website, I can pretty much assure you that it's going to work out just fine. So as I say, it, it is working out really well. It's not like I'm getting rich off of it or anything. It's not enough to fund the show by itself or, or even close, but uh, but it, it really is making up a healthy chunk of what's you know supporting the show and keeping it going and keeping me fed and clothed and housed and things like that. And so I just wanted to say, since I'm on the topic, that you should really check it out if you uh, if you haven't already or if you already use it, you know be encouraged that it really is working, you know, no matter the size of your purchase, uh, large or small, of course, it all adds up and, and ends up having a real impact. So, of course, the link you're looking for for that is right there on the website at bestoftheleft.com. And now, speaking of supporting this and other progressive shows, as I uh, have been talking about today, of course, I want to encourage you to keep voting over at podcastalley.com. Uh, for, you know, progressive shows are taking over the top 10 list. So uh, I strongly encourage you to check out uh, that top 10 list and click on the links for Best of the Left, Blast the Right, and The Young Turks. Give us all a vote, and it takes 30 seconds, maybe a minute if you have a slow internet connection. And, uh, and it, it's really easy. It's something you do once a month. 
and it helps uh, spread the word of progressive shows online. I mean, people go to that directory and see what the popular shows are. So it's a, it's a great way to spend a minute of your month and uh, and keep all of those great progressive shows right there at the top of the list. And now finally, speaking of people who really and truly uh, support the show in the most fundamental way they can, I want to thank a couple of members. Mark H. signed up for a monthly membership back on February 10th and has stuck with the show ever since then, so thank you very much, Mark. And John M. signed up for a, uh, a yearly membership starting back on January 10th. So huge thanks to all of the members, uh, Mark and John, and everyone else who's ever signed up or donated to the show. I mean, you guys are absolutely what's keeping the show uh, going strong 10 times a month. So that's going to be it for today. Please continue to support the show by telling everyone you know and meet about it. it. makes a huge difference to spread the word that way. Of course, I don't have a marketing budget. It's all about word of mouth from you guys. To stay connected with the show or even help spread the word online, join up with us over on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all the details are in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bitch burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you